How difficult has your life been up to now? Have you given a voice to the difficulties? It's time to break the silence. Temporary difficulties end and your response to them determine how you live life after your difficulties. So respond well and live. You are listening to the Patricia Adams Live radio show where we discuss life's difficult topics. Stick around. everybody, welcome. We hope to enlighten your mind and lighten your heart with each episode as we talk over difficult life topics. Help you find your voice and discover that there is life after difficulties. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Come back often and feel free to add the episode to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Pat Adams Live. And the show's website, patriciaadamslive.com. All contact links are in the show notes, and the MP3 will be available after the episode for downloading. Now, let's get into the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on today's broadcast, Motherless on Mother's Day, and we want you to join us. Just because your mother is on Mother's Day does not mean that life is over. So we want to thank you for tuning in to Trish Adams Live. I have a special guest today. His name is Ken Thomas, and he's going to share his story um, about growing up motherless and the effect and the impact it had on him. And he also would like to shed some light on how he has been able to keep living um, in spite of growing up without a mother's love, support, and nurturing. And I also want to say to those of you in the listening audience, if you are struggling in any way, in shape, form, or fashion with uh, thoughts of suicide or attempts of thinking about uh, committing suicide, to our veterans, the Veterans Suicide Helpline is 800-273-8255. The National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-784-2433. Again, if you're having any thoughts of suicide, homicide, depression, or anything of that nature, please for the Veteran Suicide Helpline, 800-273-8255, or the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-784-2433. And I am going to introduce again our guest, and his name is Ken Thomas. Ken? Yes. Thank you so much for being on the show today. And as I was um, talking about, the situation of people being without mothers. Sometimes we don't think about men and the effect of being without mothers. Normally, you know, we contrast mother-daughters, that daughters growing up without their mothers. But, um, and we tend to overlook the effect that it has on men growing, out, growing up without mothers. And especially the hardest thing is, like, growing up either not knowing who your mother is Growing up knowing who your mother is, 
and not having that connection with your mother and not getting that nurturing and that love and affection from your mother. But then at the same time, there was a young man that I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, Jonathan Burkett, who was in a similar situation. And um, he knew who his mother was um, and in all the process of all of that and didn't know who his father was specifically, had an opportunity to find, you know, finally meet his mom, but then once he met his mom, I did not receive her love and instead was the brunt of her scorn and caused him to have major health problems that brought him to the point of death. Now, in your case of going uh, motherless, uh, tell us, um, I guess, what you uh, classify as growing up without a mother. Well, for me... Being uh, motherless was a situation where I didn't actually meet my biological mother till I was probably six years old, and um, I had known uh, another lady that had taken on the, the motherly duties of raising me as the as the person to be my mother, and I just remember, you know, around five or six years old, just playing as a kid. Um, this this tall lady, really really tall lady, she seemed to be as tall as the tree at the time. Um, she came, she walked up, you know, on the porch and started smiling, and and I remember, uh, and I referred to the lady that raised me as my grandmother. Uh, she said, "That's that's your mother, you know. Say hi to her." And I was just, you know, hiding behind her leg, going, "No, no, 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 you're my mom." And uh, I just remember smiling at me and. Um, you know, she, she said hello and everything. And, um, I just remember it being a, a, a scary situation, you know, not having, you know, my biological mother there. And, um, she, she started to, you know, come by, you know, periodically, um, you know, really with no set schedule of time, you know, just whenever she, you know, felt like popping up. Um, and at the, at the time also, I had a brother that I wasn't aware of that actually lived probably three blocks from where I lived. And, um, during one of those visits, you know, uh, she brought him over and, and she was explaining that, uh, you know, he was my brother and everything. But, um, I just like to say that my mother was a, was a teenage mother, probably a, like, a, like a lot of the people, you know, in, in the audience. And uh, as a result, you know, they're not really prepared for motherhood. And a lot of times, you know, we end up in a a grandmother situation like what I had. And um, she, I think, at the time made the best decision that she could, you know, being as young as she was uh, when she had us. And... um, just trying to grow and, and develop, you know, as a person herself. So um, she eventually came to get us to live with live with her. And, um, you know, during those times, uh, I think I was probably seven or eight, you know, she'd come get us and we'd live with her for, you know, six, seven, eight months sometimes at a time and we'd go back to my grandmother. And one thing I loved the most about my grandmother was she was always open to us having a relationship with our biological mother. 
and um, I thought that was really good. She made sure that uh, she had total access to us, and um, and over the years, you know, my mother would come by and get us. You know, we'd stay off and on several years. Uh, you know, of, of doing that that cycle of coming to stay with her and, and going back and forth. I just don't think she was ever really stable, but. Um, uh, the bottom line is I think that she basically, you know, was doing the best that she could at the time. And I've had to learn to deal with that, uh, a lot of that, not having her there and her, you know, doing the best that she could at the time. And that's how I've been able to deal with the situation and, and, and be able to, to go on and live my life as best as I can. And, um, you know, some of the things that she would, you know, that she would do when she would, you know, have us, um, she basically would, um, you know, just, you know, just basically just living the life, you know, just, I, I wish, I wish the relationship was closer, you know, even, you know, the times that we were with her, um, you know, like activities and things of that nature. My mother wasn't very uh, a very active parent, you know. She, you know, when we when we did have the opportunity to live with her. Um, but when I reflect on how my mother was raised in her childhood and everything, I could kind of see why there was that disconnect there and she was unable to, uh, give us that uh, in terms of that, that being able to connect with her children, you know, because of the relationship she had with her mom and all the responsibilities that she. What was that relationship like then? Her, her relationship with her mother. What was that like? Pardon me. What was her relationship with her mother like then? Yeah, her her, her mother was. Um, you know, my grandmother was, um, you know, just very young when she had all of them. As you know, back then they used to have 10, 12, 15 kids. And a lot of times the, the oldest child, and especially if it was a girl, she usually had to help the mother uh, with raising the kids. And I think that that had a big effect on my mother and her her development with her ability to care for us once we came along in addition to how young she was at the time. Okay. So, so your your grandmother, your grandmother, okay, your mother's mother, um, uh-huh. she was married and uh, in this situation, and out of that she had 10 children, and your mother was the oldest girl. Right. And, you know, they used to have a name for them back then. They referred to them as sister. You know, oh. you, may have heard, you may have heard that, that being uh-huh. used to describe uh-huh. it. The eldest girl in the family, but basically their job was basically to back mother up with the, with the duties and the chores of raising the children. And uh, my mother was was burdened with that task, and as a result, her development uh, in terms of her schooling and her pursuing what she needed to do and was interested in at the time, it got set aside in order for her to you know do what her mother needed her to do at the time. But um, she basically, 
you know, once we came along, she she just really really struggled with uh, becoming a parent. You know, a good parent, and she never developed those skills. However, uh, during you know, my mother was married, you know, several times, and she she basically came into a situation with with her last husband. She, you know, she's now deceased. Uh, my mother's been gone since uh, uh, 2006, unfortunately. Um, she developed a relationship with another young man who had lost his mother. His mother actually passed. I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily remember if it was at birth, but he was very, very young when she passed. And uh, my mother was able to be the mother for him that he needed. And I think in a lot of instances, that's kind of what what goes on with people in, in, in these types of situations where when the biological mother is, is unable or not capable of being a mother to her own biological children, what ends up happening is somebody will step in and, 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 and fill those shoes, just like someone did it for my mother. She did it for someone else. And they developed a relationship. Pardon me? But she couldn't do that. They could take that for you and, and your brother. And you believe that that's because she grew up as the eldest uh, child in a family of 10 children and had to take on responsibility for her siblings at an early age. So um, when you talk about um, she did the best that she could with you guys, and even though you didn't live with her, and sometimes she would make unscheduled visits, to the woman that was raising you that you called grandmother. So basically, when you're talking about grandmothers, there's two different grandmothers that we're talking about here. One is the grandmother to your mother, and then the one who was raising you as a mother. But once you found out that you had a biological mother, you began to address her as grandmother. Well, I had actually always addressed my my. My grandmother, as, as as mom, as mom, you know, mama, of course. And uh, over time, I eventually started to call my mother, my biological mother, mama, you know. Mm-hmm. Over time, but it, it always felt more more natural towards uh, the grandmother because you know she put the time in. Right. And and um, um, my mother basically, um, you know, she. You know, she, I, you know, she did the best she could, I guess. You know, but the the son, the stepson that she eventually raised, you know, she she helped him all through our college and everything. You know, so she ended up giving that to someone else, and he, you know, he was able to benefit from that. And I, you know, and I think that you know that can be a good thing too. You know, I mean, he'll always have that those memories and. Uh, and then be able to benefit from that relationship with my mother, you know. And it's nice to see that even though she wasn't able to give it to us, her biological children, but she was still somewhat capable of, you know, later on in her life of developing a relationship with somebody and sticking, you know, sticking to it and being there for him and coming through. And, you know, unlike us, you know, uh, I kind of wanted, you know, some of that too, but for some reason she couldn't make the connection with us, but she made it to one else. 
And I think in some ways that was her way of kind of dealing with the situation of not being there for us, you know. It made her feel like she was kind of making up for that, I believe. You know, it allowed her to to be a mother still, you know. And that, that was probably a good thing, too, for her in her situation. And, um, uh, you know, she... You know, but uh, the thing, the thing that you know, some of the things that kind of really stand out that 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 bothered me coming up, you know, was that when she would show up during some of those, you know, unannounced visits or unplanned visits, you know, she would, you know, just show up and come by and, you know, asking us, you know, well, what do you guys want for Christmas and all that. And my brother and I were singing our hearts out in terms of what we wanted as far as gifts were concerned. And, um, you know, when Christmas would come, you know, we, you know, we wouldn't hear from her, wouldn't see her or anything. So that was always, you know, kind of hard to deal with at the time. But thank God for grandmothers because my grandmother was definitely a soldier, you know. And come to think about it, you know, not still within the same thing, uh, the grandmother that raised me, her mother, my grandmother's mother raised her son. So it's it's the same scenario playing out where the person that raised me didn't raise her son, but by the time she got to where she had a certain level of understanding and responsibility, and if, I, if I'm doing the numbers correctly, she she got me around, I think she was around in mid-40s somewhere, but she had her son at a very young age, just like my mother did. And when you think about it, when my grandmother was looking at my mom, she had already walked in her shoes, so to speak, with the exception that my grandmother was not the one in the family uh, of siblings uh, being referred to as sister. Now, she had a sister, older sister, that did the same thing that my mother did, but there was a different outcome, though, you know, for my grandmother. So I, I see it playing out the same you know with 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 a lot of uh a lot of different people in my family not to say that it's like that for everybody but you know when when I sit back and I analyze you know relationships with, with between parents and mothers it's a common thing you know when one person can't do it you know somebody else picks up the slack and I think uh that's just that's just how we've been able to make it but uh, you know, my mother, you know, she didn't have to have us, but she she carried us nine months, and she allowed us to be born, and and that's a good thing, you know. She could have did what a lot of other people chose to do, and that's not carry the pregnancy to term. So, um, you know, I I uh, I think my mother gave it the best shot she had. You know, even though as I got older, I understood that, you know, I needed more, but she just wasn't able to give it to us. But I still loved her, though, and I always wanted her to tell me she loved me. She was never able to say that, and it could be because nobody never told her that, you know. You know, unlike, you know, but the difference for me is, is that I see it differently than she did, and I tell my daughter I love them, you know. I, I I say it because not only do I mean it, I want them to hear it. And uh, 
and I see how it makes them feel. So it could you could still have a, a positive outcome and outlook from a situation, you know, similar to mine, where uh, I'm the total opposite of my mother as far as my parenting, my parenting is concerned. Not to say I'm a perfect parent, because I really didn't have any examples either, but, you know, I pay attention and, and I, I choose to be a certain way. You know, if I say, you know, I'm going to do this, you know, I do my best to follow through. And my children see that. And I think they appreciate that too. But my brother and I, you know, just to touch on him a little bit, um, you know, he was affected by it totally differently than I was, you know. You know, I was kind of like the, the kid that got in everything coming up, you know, in and out of trouble. And and he was a really good kid. I mean, he did everything the right way. You know, he played little league football. I didn't play football. He was in band. I wasn't in band. I was off doing my thing, you know. And, um, and, you know, he graduated high school. I didn't, but, you know, later went back to school. And and uh, he uh, married his high school girlfriend, you know, went off to the military, a whole nine. But once he got grown, and, and I guess he he moved into a different phase of his life, and he just he just had a total collapse, you know, and in terms of... Uh, parenting, you know, and he, he started to, uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, he had a lot of the same characteristics towards his children that my mother had toward us, and uh, and it affects him to this day. I mean, and he did everything right. He had the good grades. He had the teachers that would you know, take he and I both home with them, you know, because he was such a good student and they were trying to, uh, you know, expose us to, you know, better, a better way, you know, of being and all of that. I mean, I was I was always benefiting by how well he was doing in school at the time. And now that we're grown, you know, things have, have turned. It's like I'm the, I'm the rock in the family now. I'm you know, uh, I, I pretty much, you know, see after everybody and, you know, you know, and uh, take care of everybody and, you know, if there's something they need, I, you know, I try to come through for them too. And I think that that parenting, that lack of parenting that I got from my mother also affected me that way too. I just want to make it right for, for all my family that's around me, you know, I've, I've had a little bit of success in business, and um, and they know that, and a lot of the things that they request, you know, is just so, so, so small, you know, and uh, I help, I help all of them, my, my, even my mother's sisters come to me, you know, when they need things. You know, that's just what my position is, and I accept that responsibility, you know. And I think, I think my mother is proud of me, 
you know, where, where she you know, where she is now. I think she looks better and she's proud. You know, to say, wow, that's that's my son. You know, he stepped up, you know, because I used to be the one that was always in trouble. But um, it's a different story today. And I feel good about that. I can do just about anything I set my mind to. You know, um, and uh, you could still have a, I'm, I'm proof that you could still turn out all right. You know, in spite of your, your background and your situation, where you come from, you know. And, um, you know, i got nephews that are, I'm helping, you know, through school and, you know, paying for tuition and all of that. You know, they come to their own. And hey, these are my brother's kids, too, you know, and... One of my nephews, he's always, he's really upset with his dad's effort in terms of, of being a father. And I always tell him, you know, you're going to be there for him when he needs you. You know, just like I'm here for you, you're going to be there for him. But he can't see it right now because he's so young. But he's going he's gonna to do the right thing. I, I really believe that. I really believe that. So, um, in regards to the impact that it had on you not having your mother, uh, as, you know, as a stable figure in your life, going up uh, basically without her, um, and relying on your surrogate mother, the grandmother that you call mom, uh, mm-hmm. and basically, I remember uh, in our previous conversation when we were doing, like, the interview when you were talking about in your mom's final days, that, um, you didn't really know that she was dying until a member of the family came and told you that she was dying. Right, right. My mom, unfortunately, you know, she was a a lifetime smoker, you know. Um, you know, she started when she was 15. And uh, during the last year of her life, uh, you know, she'd been sick and in and out of the hospitals. But, you know, because of of level of relationship we had, my brother and I never knew that she was that far far along in her sickness. And um, I just got a phone call one day, and that's that's kind of when all this 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 revelation with me kind of started too a little bit was when we got that phone call. You know, my her sister called me, and 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 my brother and got us both on the phone and uh, explain the situation because uh, my mother didn't, you know, she'd run out of money, you know, she borrowed up all the equity in the home and, you know, was at the point about to, being, about to be put out on the street and everything. And and uh, my, her, her sister called and she was just crying, you know, just being, being emotional and loving her sister the way she did. She begged us to help her, and um, we listened. We were on a three-way conversation, and you know, and once uh, once we got off the phone with my aunt, my brother and I had a conversation, and I said, uh, "So, what do you want to do?" You know, and like I was explaining a minute ago, how how things have changed since we were kids, how 
you know, I went from what I was to what I am today, and he kind of went from what he was to what he is today. And his thing, he took the attitude well. You know, he said, you know, hey, I knew this day was coming, and uh, I ain't got nothing to do with that over there, you know. And I was like, uh, well, I understand how you feel, you know, but, you know, we need to step up and be an example for our mother. You know, we need to be men. We need to uh, we need to be there for her because, well, you know, he's like, well, she wasn't there for me. And I was like, well, hey, I understand that, but, you know, here's a, here's an opportunity for us. And And we both took our positions and you know, I came over, and it was, it was, you know, it was very uncomfortable because, you know, I had those periods of homelessness uh, where my mother, you know, had actually uh, done a, a couple of times when we would come to stay with her, she'd actually put me out for different reasons, you know, uh, kind of backtracking a little bit. But, you know, I got put out once for just allowing her brother to eat one day, my uncle, when he came by, you know, she, she got really upset about that. You know, it was only a couple of potatoes, but, you know, her thing was don't give my food away to nobody. It was her baby brother, but, um, it was uncomfortable, you know, coming by the house at first, uh, to, to, to see what was going on. Cause when I first walked in, I never really felt that sense of um, that now that I'm you're supposed to feel a certain sense of comfort and peace and 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 when you when you're around your family and your folks that's what I believe but there was always this this kind of kind of tension in the air because my mother could be unpredictable at times you know she you know. You, you could kind of catch on a good day. You might not get, you know, cursed out, so to speak. And then you might. It just all depends on what was going on with her at the time. But you would always take that. You were always taking that chance when you were around her. So as a result of the relationship basically having been like that all of my life, when we showed up at the end of her life, um, it was, I had to, I had to work my way through that very uncomfortable feeling of being around her, even though I, w- I wanted to be there for her, but I was still uncomfortable with the situation because I was never allowed to be totally comfortable when she was doing all right, and she and she was able to do, you know, for herself the way she, she did because she was very independent. But uh, I made that adjustment, you know, and I remember the first night I stayed at the house, once she realized that once once we had been made aware of her situation, and it was such an uncomfortable feeling. You know, just all that had gone on between us, she she and my brother and I, 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 I would relive those different situations in my mind. And, and, and I remember sleeping at the house, and I, I couldn't even, I couldn't get a good night's sleep because I felt like I was somewhere where I'd never really been really been comfortable and wanted, you know. It's a certain feeling I believe that your children children are supposed to have, that, that comfort, that feeling safe, that feeling, you know, uh that everything's gonna be okay. 
didn't stay here at the time. I wasn't living here at the time, you know, with my mom during that period. I uh, I basically just came over and I said, hey, look, uh, your sister called. She explained the situation. I said that um, uh, what I'm going to do for you, Mom, is I'm, I'm going to pay all your bills, and hopefully you'll get, you'll get better. You know, I'll pay your bills until either you get better and get back to work or your your Social Security kicks in or whatever. But my, my position basically was just to keep her stable until her money started to come in higher, whether she could get back on her feet, work for it, or, 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 or whatever else she would qualify for. But in the, in, the, in the meantime, in the interim, she was behind on the notes on the house. So, I mean, it, it, I, it, I, had, I walked in with my checkbook, you know, I, and basically said, "Mama, how much does how much is it going to take to get you straight on the house?" And I wrote that check for what she said she needed for her to keep the house. Now, keep in mind, I was giving my mom that security that she needed, and at that moment in her life. Now, all these other people that she was there for did all those things for spent all her time, energy, and resources with, they weren't there. Even this cat that she raised as her son through a marriage that she had. You know, it was a previous marriage because by the time she got to that that stage in her life, that marriage had ended as well. But I was the only one standing. I'm talking about the one that got put out for feeding her brother couple of potatoes, <laughs> the one that got put out, and I remember sleeping on the streets and everything, so for me to be standing there and do that, you know, it just, it, 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 it was another way of me trying to love my mother and show my mother that all I really ever wanted was her, that's all I ever really wanted was my mom. You know, and not to take away anything that my grandmother did. I love her to death. She, you know, uh, but I just wanted my mother, and uh, I wrote that check. I paid paid the bills at the house. I even gave my mother pocket change so she could get in her car and go where she wanted to go during those final months of her life. And I knew what I was. I knew I was being. I, I knew I was being used. But at the same time, I had to, I had to do it. You know, like some people have a thing about being used. It's like you know, iPhone, I know. But in that instance, you know, because I, I always knew while I was in that, doing that process, that if the shoe were on the other foot, I would just be, you know, stuck out, so to speak, on my own, and I would have had to do the best I, I, I could, you know. And um, and I was able to stand there, and, 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 and my mother would come by the house I was standing at the time, get money. And uh, I guess the roles sort of, sort of reversed a little bit. I was making sure she had what she needed all the way till my mother left this world. And I remember, I remember, because my, my mother passed in like, Three days before Christmas, it was like the week of Christmas, maybe two or three days before Christmas. And I remember 
the last event she went to because uh, I also made arrangements for uh, my daughter and her mother to move in with my mom because they had a, a decent relationship and they moved into the house with mom and I remember the last outing that they had where they all got in the car and they spent Christmas dinner at her son's house, the one that she raised from a previous marriage. That was the last social event that my mother went to while I was paying all the bills at the house for her. But I understood that. I just knew that this, this, this just that's the world that she had created for herself. You know, and a lot of people wouldn't have been able to deal with that. But I had to I had to take the high road. It's not sometimes you're not always the beneficiary of what the situation is that you're in at the time. And in that instance, you know, that was that that's where I was. And it, it allowed me to grow too in, in a different way too. You know. Where you know that if the shoe's on the other foot that you wouldn't get the same benefit, you wouldn't get the same commitment, but at the same time, you go through the process because you know it's the right thing to do. She still gave birth to me. I I couldn't walk around here and let my mother get put out on the street, and I I, I basically was out there, you know, at her hand at one point, you know. By the hand of my mother, I've been on the street a couple of times, but you know, getting out there, bumping my head, making mistakes and learning, you know, I don't know. You know, I know some people that had everything a parent can give them, and they're not, they don't have any motivation at all. And I know not everyone's like that, and of course you would want to be raised uh, by your parents, but it affected me differently. It, it 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 made me realize that I had to perform if I was gonna make it. You know, I'm I'm not a I'm I'm not gonna be able to to slack or wait on somebody else or nothing like that. But my brother, he cried the blues. That that's why he doesn't really care about anything, and he was what I considered to be a decent kid. He's everything I would want in the he, he was everything I would want in the kids growing up. You know, so it was a learning experience going through all of that to know that my mother's last social event was with someone that wasn't her biological son that she loved and cared for. And I respected that relationship that they had. And then when it kinda of came time to put my mother in the ground, he didn't he didn't make any contribution toward that financially. That burden fell on me to do that. And to my brother's credit, he even came up with a few dollars. You know? So, life has a strange way of teaching us for I'm concerned. You know? But I always try to make sure when it, when it's all said and done, I can walk away knowing that I made the best decision, you know, in real time, so to speak. I don't have any regrets. 
part of how I handled my mother. But unfortunately, the only time I really had my mother to, to, to myself was when she was dying. She was about to leave the earth. I mean, so much so where I remember getting over in the hospital bed with her. You know, she was out there, and you know, at that particular stage, I just, just, I just got over in the bed with her for for, for a few minutes and just laid there with her while she was still here. You know, I wanted it all the way to the end, knowing that you know. She spent her life living for others. But I still love my mother, though, in spite of all of that. I still love her in spite of all of that. I still respect her. And I know she went through some changes. Like we all do. But uh, it made me stronger.
when, you know, I think the hardest part of that whole final moment is that there's, there's you know, this empty space, this quietness where all you hear is the um, machinery, the life support machinery. Again, it's almost like you don't even hear that because you're so busy trying to see them. You know, it's like you can you can be in the room and all those bells and whistles going off, and but your ears are so alert and so attentive to them. Because for me personally, like when my mom was like in the final stages of dying, and she you know had not raised or anything like that, the thing that I was hoping for was that okay, you realize that you're dying, you realize that you're leaving this earth. Um, come, you know, just can you not just come out and just stay? And even, even never having her tell me herself who my father was. Okay, just just a thought. She didn't know whether I I knew who my father was or not because she definitely had not told me. Okay. She had not told me anything in regards to um, how she felt about me, if she was sorry, or anything. And so when she was dying in her final stages, I was holding out hope. Still, I was holding out hope that she would say something. You know, um, even if she didn't say, I love you, just say, you know, I'm sorry, or, you know, did you ever find out who my father was, God, or whatever? You know, even though I found out who my father was, I never told her that I did. And never having her acknowledge that for me at all. And so it was kind of like when she was in that final moment, she was like curled up in this fetal position and she had lost a lot of weight and she had shrunk because she was a tall woman, but she had shrunk. And um, she just looked at at me, you know, and she was, she became like really defiant and um, like even on her deathbed, as if she wanted to hurt me while she was dying, which was the the strangest thing, you know, anything to impact me while she was dying. Like like her last breath, she wanted to see me upset. She wanted to hurt me, so she started thinking she had a feeding tube down her nose, and um, she started yanking the feeding tube out of her nose. Um, she started just, you know, acting like she just didn't care. One one way or the other, she just did not care. And I remember when I first walked into the room, I had gotten a phone call um, from the hospital telling me that. Um, I needed to get to the hospital uh, because she was in the final stage of dying. So it was like early in the morning time, and I told my sister, no, I'm, I'm not feeling well myself, and I had had some other things going on with me. And I said, so um, I can't make it. And she said, well, they, don't, they didn't think she was going to make it through the night. And I said, well, I know that God knows that I can't come tonight. Um, but I was in there first thing in the morning. So they said, well, okay, um, we can't promise you that she's going to make it. I said, 
I just I'd have to believe that she'll still be there in the morning. So I got up and I went to the hospital and I walked in the room where she was. And uh, I kid you not, when I walked in the room, she looked at me and she looked at me with these angry eyes. You know, and, um, you know, like she was just ready to cuss me out. And I looked at her, and I was I was, I was, was really sick. I was really, really sick when I got there, and um, I just, I was just too weak to even respond to her, you know, response to my showing up at the hospital. And so I, you know, I spoke to her and everything, and I sat down in the chair, and um, waited for the doctor to come by. But while I was waiting for the doctor, she raised up and she looked at me. And uh, you know how they they call flipping the bird? She flipped the bird with both of her fingers, huh? I was just saying, yes, I I, I know. (laughs) Yeah, so she flipped me the bird with both of her fingers. And I, I, I was so, like I said, I was so sick and so weak myself that I had no response and she raised up and she looked at me because I, I think she expected for me just to fall to pieces or whatever and I was just sitting there just looking at her and I'm thinking like okay you know you're dying and this is this this is you know your final response to me um so she flipped me a double bird again and I looked again at her, and I'm thinking, you know, I just don't have it. I, I just I don't have a response to give you over that. I really don't. I really, really don't. Because it would take too much out of me to have a, you know, just a fit. Because, you 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 know, this is this is what you have for me on your deathbed, you know. Um, and I thought to myself, I have been a good daughter. I have been the best daughter that I possibly could be in light of the situation. And where so many people had told me, well, you know, it doesn't matter. Um, You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. Um, Why don't you just, you know, why do you even care? You know, why why do you even care what happens to her and everything? Um, And I, like you, I tried to compensate for my mom. And I tried, I felt like I owed her something. I tried to make up to her um, because I felt like, you know, here she was. Everybody, you know, believed that she was going to be so successful in life and she had everything going for her, you know, and everything and highly intelligent, um, just, you know, a very gifted woman. Mm -hmm. And giving birth to me, was a travesty for her. And people, even even as I was growing up as a little kid and for a while not knowing who my mom was, I always had people, you know, I used to see people whispering. <laughs> and people would just be whispering, you know, when I would be around or they would make comments, you know, oh, she's not like her mom. Or I'm thinking like, what are they saying? What are they talking about? Who are they talking about? You know, oh, you know, I mean, just just from my complexion to my hair, because my mom had like really curly, long, wavy hair, and I had long hair, but it wasn't wavy like my mom's. And I mean, they would make comments like that, 
So uh, just and, and then I later found out that these some of the people who were making comments were people who had gone to school with my mother in high school. And then when I went to school, when I went to school um, from elementary school on up, I would have teachers come down to wherever I was, and they would point at me and point out at me, and uh, one of them would call me out of class sometimes and ask me who my mom was, and I would give a name. And they said, you know, that's not who your mom is. And I'm thinking, like, yes, it is, <laughs> because I was given the name of the woman that was raising me, you know, like you. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't my real mom, but they kept saying, that's not your mom. And I'm thinking, like, yes, it is. You know, I mean, she just dropped me off at school. And then they would just start just talking about me as if I wasn't there, and you know, well, blah, 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 you know. So then I found out that these school teachers had been classmates of my mom, of my birth mother. You know, I found out later in life. And then some of the school principals that I had and some of the school teachers that I had from uh, elementary school all the way up to high school had either been my mom, my birth mother's principals, or school teachers. And I, I would encounter that all my life with people calling me out to the side and saying, you know, where's your mom? You know, and I'm like, she's at home. And I, for real? You know, and I say, yeah. And they would ask me, you know, my mom's name, and I would tell them this other lady's name, you know. And I will never forget, I was in high school, and someone um, someone in the office was calling uh, out a name. They said, you know, Patricia, and I, you know, and I know the last name that they called out. And so I was just in the hallway, and another girl uh, passed me on the way to the office. She said, that should be you going to the office uh, because that's your last name. And I'm thinking, like, that's not my last name. You know, so, I mean, Having people who who knew my birth mother, people who knew my birth father, but nobody ever really just coming out and just saying it and just, you know, making any any windows. I even had one of my mom's science teachers in high school, and I didn't know it until I was a grown woman. Um, he put me out of his science class. And I could not figure out why he put me out of his science class. And from the moment that I walked in, he looked at me and he told me, he said, um, go, you know, to the counselor's office and have your schedule changed. And I said, why, you know, I need this class. And he said, well, you know, you need to go and take it from another teacher. And so I said, well, why can't I stay here? So it was like a couple of class periods that I kept going through that with him. And he finally had me removed from his class. And as an adult, I went uh, to, you know, once I started realizing and putting the pieces together, you know, okay, this was my, you know, this was my birth mother, this person, other person was my birth mother, um, I started, you know, going trying to find her and looking for her and asking questions and stuff. Um, and in my, in my early 20s, I found one of her school <coughs> that had been her journalism teacher, and I went to her house. And she had a yearbook of my mother's. Uh, you know, it wasn't my mother's personally, but it was a yearbook because she was a journalism teacher. And I opened that book, and when I opened the book and I saw the science teacher that I had that put me out of his class had been my mother's science teacher. I saw principals that had been my principals in, in my mother's yearbook. 
they had either been students at the time my mom was a student or they were school teachers at the time and later became principals or, you know, something to that nature at the time. And all these people all that time, all my life, who didn't like me because they blamed my birth on my mother's not succeeding in life. And so I had to, you know, carry that load. I had to carry that load. And for years I blamed myself. And so when I did finally meet my birth mother, you know, just really officially confirmed, you know, that she was my birth mother, having suspicions as a little child and confirming that she was my birth mother, um, I would have flashbacks and, you know, trying to put pieces together and remembering a woman rejecting me as a child, um, remembering um, uh, a woman, you know, trying to drown me as a child. And, you know, then I'm thinking, like, that was her. That was my, you know, my birth mother that was doing those things to me. And walking down the street behind a group of kids and looking at this woman and, you know, who is this woman that we're following? And somebody in the back saying, that's your mama. And I'm, like, at the back of the line, and she's holding other people's kids, you know. And I'm just like, that's, I'm like, for real? So it's like, you know, as the pieces started coming together and I started having these flashbacks and stuff, and putting the pieces together, I'm thinking, like, okay, all that time, that was her. I didn't really know who she, you know, as a kid, you just, you know, like you said, you don't make those connections because those people aren't in your life. You know, you catch glimpses of them here and there. And so with me, then when I finally um, got her to acknowledge me, because for years she didn't, you know, when I tried to, you know, reach out to her, try to make contact with her, she didn't acknowledge me. And then, so uh, I was like in my 20s, like I said, maybe 21, and a former classmate of mine knew that I had been looking for my birth mother. And they had been working at a facility where my mom was at, and they said, uh, I know where your mom is at. I'm thinking, like, are you serious? Like, don't play. He said, yeah, I know where she is. So I remember uh, going with them to this place where she was, and um, she walked, you know, by me, hmm. just walked by me and didn't say anything. And it, it was so uncanny because when I looked at her, it was like looking at my twin. Hmm. And she knew who I was, but she walked, you know, she walked right by me. So, hmm. um, you know, I didn't try to pursue that at that point, and it was maybe like a year or so later that I tried again, and I said, if she rejects me again, it's rap. So I, you know, I, I go to where she is, and she's, you know, with other people and stuff. And um, I look at, you know, and I says, I'm looking for my mom. And I said, blah blah blah. And so she comes, you know, around the corner, and she looks at me, and everybody says, you know, who is this uh, person, you know, that's asking for you? And she said out of her mouth, "It's my daughter." They say, "Yo, what?" They said, we didn't know you had any kisses. You know, we, we've never heard you talk about having a, a child. <laughs> and I, I I was like, wow. She finally admits to knowing me. She finally acknowledges me, you know. So, so, I, so, so, huh? so, so, so you saying all of this was because you were born during a time that she – was was trying to go to school, right? She had um, 
how, how can I put it? She had gone oh, oh. off college. She had gone off uh-huh. to college on scholarship straight from high school. Okay. Um, right. And but I was, you know, I was born in the fifties, and so she had graduated in the fifties and gone off to college and everything. And she came back from college because, you know, she just didn't want to be away because they sent her out of state and they sent her to like a predominantly white college. And that was, you know, a hard place for her. So um, she came back and she was supposed to have gone to college locally. And uh, she decided that she was going to get a job with the government. So she ended up getting a job with the federal government. I mean, she was like a secretary for the government in the 50s. And that was just something that, you know, everybody was saying, you know, that was just unheard of. But she was, you know, just that good. So she got that job, and then uh, she met my father, because, you know, as the story goes. He was working for the government at the time, and she met my father, and, um, you know, he just. Do you think that (laughs) she was affected? Do you think that she could have been affected by that whole stigma back during that period where, you know, women were really really looked down on if they had children outside of marriage? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And the biggest thing of it is is that she was a very proud woman, and even, you know, they said as a child, you know, that she Mm -hmm. was so proud that she walked with her nose, and she had a pointy nose, which is really funny. She had a pointy nose to begin with, okay? And so when she walked, she would walk with her nose turned up in the air, and they said sometimes you would think that she was going to trip on the sidewalk because she would never look down. Mm. And so I, I, I had people that she went to school with who, uh, basically, um, were very cool to me uh, when I was looking for my mother, and they said, "Well, you know, I heard so and so and so about your mama, da 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 da, whatever, you know." And they just bust out and start laughing because she was supposed to succeed. You know, she was at the top of her class, uh, scholarship, everything. She was supposed to succeed. You know, here she was. They considered her high-minded, and you know, Miss Goody Two Shoes and stuff. And so she was supposed to succeed. So. Uh, you know, getting with my father and stuff and him saying that he was going to marry her and all this and them going, you know, to the courthouse to get the marriage license and all these kinds of things like that and then only to find out that he was still married. So, um, you know, I heard that she had bought a house um, and, you know, bought a car and I, I remember her car because I, when somebody told me that, I had a flashback of a memory mm-hmm. that I had of a car, and I remember um, my father driving by the house laughing at my mom in her car with a bunch of women in the car with him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just like when people would say things, it would trigger memories that, mm-hmm. you know, because I had been removed away from that situation that, you know, it just, they just brought these memories back to me. And so for, um, for her, it was like um, she just... She couldn't, you know, I, I don't think that she wanted to deal with the embarrassment mm. of it, you know. Mm. And um, so, um, you know, uh, my my grandfather was very domineering, um, her, mm. her, you know, her biological father. He was very domineering, and so my birth father was very domineering. And so I think mm. that she felt kind of like, you know, just stretched between two worlds, and so my grandfather was making demands on her, and my father was making demands on her, 
and, um, you know, and my grandmother was making demands on my father. And so it just became a vicious triangle, a vicious circle. And so, you know, this is me going back and putting the pieces together. But I grew up without her. You know, I I remember um, being around her, thinking that she was just somebody in the neighborhood, okay? And I remember at four, I had asked her to help me wash my hair because I had been outside and I had gotten the dirt. And I remember putting soap in my hair and, you know, being in in the bathroom with my head under the bathtub, and I couldn't get the soap out of my hair, and I was getting soap in my eyes. And I went to her, and I asked her, would you help me wash my hair? And she said, sure. And she got up, came in the bathroom, and I had my head underneath the uh, the faucet, and she was dunking my head under the faucet trying to drown me. And I was trying to fight back, and I remember uh, hearing people rush in behind her and pulled her off of me. And I remember when they pulled her off of me, I just collapsed on the side of the tub. And I never saw her again. So that was that scenario. For me, the woman like you, you know, the person who was raising me is who I called mother. I never had called her mother. And so that particular person uh, was murdered when I was six. And so um, that was the mom that I had. That that was the mom that I knew. And so um, when I walked in on the crime scene where she had been murdered at, you know, my whole life just flipped upside down. So I'm, you know, just traumatized because the blood and everything is everywhere. And I'm just like, you know, I'm in trouble. I I don't have anybody. I, I just had that presence of mind, and I was going up and down the neighborhood, knocking on doors, asking people could I live with them. The same day that, you know, she had been attacked, I was, you know, walking up and down the neighborhood asking people, could they take me in because I had nowhere to go. And so from that time forward, um, when she died, my mother, and that's who I, you know, still to this day consider my mother, when my mother died, um, her husband took me to a family and sold me for $10,000. Well, they promised to pay him $10,000, but when he came back to get the money, they handed him court papers. So instead of paying him $10,000, they decided to take him to court for custody of me. So that went on, you know, for like about seven years. But if you can think of the transition of going from my mom being murdered to being sold to this family and within a matter of months after my mom being murdered, and nobody explaining to me what just happened. Nobody. You know, nobody talked about her. Nobody talked about what happened. Nobody told me what happened, nothing. It was just like, to them, she didn't exist. I had a new family. I was supposed to deal with it. I was supposed to adjust, and that was it. So, um, you know, from the time I was like seven until I was 16, I was with this new family, and she began to brainwash me and tell me all kinds of stories that um, my mother that got murdered wasn't my mother and the other woman who tried to drown me wasn't my mother, but she was my mother and how she was my mother was that she had had an affair with uh, uh, one of the um, the church leaders, 
and had gotten pregnant um, and had cheated on her husband and basically in secrecy had given birth and given me to this other family uh, because this other woman had lost her baby. So I was supposed to have been the substitute. So supposedly she had, had, had twins, okay, one of them died, I survived, and so to keep it a secret, she gave me to this other family. So now I was back, and she just wanted me to know that she was my real mother. Now, this woman looked nothing like me, and I looked nothing like her, okay? So I had trouble accepting that, you know? Um, and so I, I went through that whole process, and... It, it was it was it was just it was really crazy because she was abusive. Uh, she used me for like child labor, basically. Um, you know, to I mean, at seven, eight, nine, and ten, you know, you take like washing machines and and all this kind of stuff. I was taking uh, sledgehammers and I was breaking open washing machines to pull out the metal and the uh, the motors. Yeah, and I would that's stay what, up at that's night. What a, huh? That's what a copper is inside. Yeah. Those, uh, and so yeah. we would, you know, put the motors inside of the fire, and I would pull the wire out of the motors, and we would take it to the metal shop. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what I was doing. You know, it's like I basically was paying my, you know, my key, earning my key. And mm-hmm. so she was not loving to me. She was not nurturing to me. She was very abusive. Uh, she beat me. I mean, she beat me so much that the neighbors would come outside and holler. Stop beating that girl. Stop beating that girl. You know? Um, and when they would do that, she would just make, she would just beat me even harder. Um, the man that was living there, her husband, um, she was beating me so one time he came in to try to pull her off of me she turned around and started beating him, and he ran out. So that was that was you know my environment. She was she was not loving. She was not nurturing to me. Um, there was no bond there between us. And so when I was sixteen, uh, she slipped into a diabetic coma, and she died. And so when she died, basically um, the man that was there he didn't want me, and he told me he didn't want me. So he called um, this other family and told them, basically, come and get her. So from 16 to 18, I go, and I'm with another family, um, which is her family. And then from there, I'm basically being uh, attacked again, and I'm being sexually assaulted. Um, I'm you know, being taken advantage of by an older man in the family. And then the sister of this of this of this other woman that was you know uh, had me in her care was basically using me uh, for uh, her own gain. So it was just like um, you know she tried to marry me off to a man that had five kids. I was seventeen and he was forty something years old. And he had five kids. And so the the deal was is that in order to marry me, he had to help build the church for her. So he drew up a blueprint, showed it to her, and told her that that's what he would build for her if he could marry me, a 40-something-year-old man with five kids. 
and I'm 17. So, you know, um, <laughs> I you know I dealt with all of that, and so I, I went through um, uh, one of the other sisters uh, molesting me from the time I was seven until I was 17. So, you know, I never had a mother's love. I never had a father's protection. Never had a father's love. So the effect that it had on me when I finally did break out of all of this, you know, drama and everything, um, I, I tried to hide from all these people. You know, for years I would run and try to hide from all these people. And, you know, the one time that I, I, I tried to hide, I ended up in a really bad area trying to live um, because I figured they wouldn't come looking for me in this area, and a guy stalked me and kidnapped me and held me hostage and uh, sexually assaulted me. So, you know, by the time I'm 18 years old, you know, I, I've gone through pure hell, absolute hell, but never really knowing if this other woman was my mother or the woman that got murdered was my mother or the woman that slipped into a coma was my mother, you know. And so um, it put me on a search trying to find the truth and in trying to find out who my father was, um, hoping that he could tell me who my mother was, you know. I had a guy who who told me that he knew who my birth mother was and he could prove it, that or whatever. He told me things about her that I, you know, confirmed things that I'd heard about my, my, you know, the woman that was supposed to be my mother. And he acted as if he was my father until uh, one day he couldn't take it anymore. And next thing I know, you know, I mean, he had invited me to his house. I was saying, you know, weekends at his house, you know, in in a uh, a bedroom that he had you know, set up for me and everything. And I was just happy, you know, that I finally had somebody uh, in my life, you know, especially a father. And next thing I know, he decides that he can't keep up the charade and he's raping me. And he's telling me that um, he had gone to school with my mother and he had wanted to be with my mother and that he had been with my mother and blah, 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 blah. And so when he saw me, I looked so much like my mother. He saw me as an opportunity to get with my mother through me. You know what I'm saying? So I was a substitute for his delusion. And so, you know, just just in searching for my mother, the harm that I endured and the harm that I went through to, to get to that point. And then when I finally found her, you know, I was willing to do anything I could to try to please her, to try to make up for um, what she didn't get or what, you know, uh, you know, it was like I, I went to her as if, I, as if I was guilty, you know. And she used that to her advantage because she would ask me for stuff that I knew I couldn't afford, <laughs> you know. But I, I would I would get it. You know, she would say, you know, I was downtown today and I saw this coat in uh, such and such window. You know, I, I would like to have that. You know, and either I, I would go and try to get it or charge it or whatever, you know. And I'm just thinking, like, you know, you don't really have any kind of love or affection or any kind of concern for me or my well-being. You just want to use me. 
And I I went along with that for years. I, I just let her just use me and just use me and just use me until um, I became a mother myself. And then all I could think of was that, you know, um, I need to, you know, take care of my child first. My first priority is me taking care of my child. So that means that I can't do for her the things that I had been doing for her. So we went through a rocky period because I wasn't, you know, reciprocating and, and, you know, getting her the things that she wanted. And so, you know, I didn't see her for a while. And I remember probably um, in my 30s I had gone to see her to make peace, and I had written her a poem. And I asked her if I could read the poem to her, and I had gone back to college. I was in college. And I asked her if I could read a poem that I had written for her, and I read the poem to her, and she didn't say anything to me. She couldn't say anything to me about it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she walked up to me, and she hugged me again. And when she hugged me, I fainted. I fainted, literally fainted on her bed because I had never had a mother's touch. had never had a mother's touch, you know. And when I came to, I stood up and I looked at her like this little wounded lamb and I asked her to do it again and she didn't do it again, you know. And I, it was just like I was so hungry, I was so thirsty for her to hold me, to hug me you know, to kiss me, to tell her, to tell me that she loved me, you know. And I would say, I love you, Mama, you know, I love you, you know, hoping that she would say, you know, I love you back. And every single time she would just mumble, just, you know, like that, you know. And um, after my child was born, you know, I thought, I said, okay, so I'm going to, you know, win her love now, you know, because she's she's got to be proud of me now, you know, and um, I can honestly tell you without a shadow of a doubt that she loved my child. Uh, She had no problems saying I love you to my child, hugging my child, holding my child's hand, but um, when it came my turn, (laughs) she couldn't, she couldn't say it, she couldn't do it, you know. So, um, I remember um, asking her, can we take, take, you know, take some pictures together, you know, mother and daughter pictures together? She didn't want to do it, you know. And so one day I had somebody just say, hey, you know, take, take, take this picture of me. And I just came up behind her and I just hugged her from behind, you know. And that's how, you know, I had a picture of us together. But I have no pictures of the two of us together, you know. And so... I just kept waiting. I kept being the dutiful daughter, kept doing and going and everything, and just hoping that one day before she died that she would just open up and just spill the beans, you know, tell me, okay, you know, I'm I'm sorry, or tell, you know, tell me that she was proud of me or tell me that she loved me or tell me that she appreciated me or tell me that she wished me well. Just, just holding on for just a sliver of her affection, a sliver of love from her, and it was like when she died, I was, you know, I was devastated, but at the same time, I was relieved that I was finally free. 
it was finally over. You know, it the the weight of having um having that empty sack, if you would. That's that's you you know, it's kind of like having a feed sack around your neck, but you don't have any oats in it, and you're waiting for somebody to put some oats in it. You know what I'm talking about? I know that sounds a crazy analogy, but it's like being a, a, a horse with an empty feed sack around your neck, and you're, you're hungry, you're starving, and nobody is putting any oats in there for you to eat. That's how I felt when I was trying to win her love, is that I was waiting for her to put some love in my bag, you know, waiting for her to make a deposit in my bag. And I wore that bag around my neck, and it was so heavy and it was so weighty. And so when I got the phone call that she was dead, um, I remember going home um, after I had been up to the hospital and everything, and they said, you know, it won't be long. You know, she may have six months, she may have a year. And she died sooner than, you know, six months. She didn't end up living another six months after that. And so um, I had seen her in the hospital at the beginning of March, and by May she was gone. But I remember when I went home in March from the hospital, um, and I just cried my eyes out, and I just begged God. I said, you know, um, she's not going to tell me that she loves me. She's not going to give it to me. She's not going to give to me what I've been waiting for all this time. And I said, you know, you've got to heal my heart. I said, but at the same time, um, I need you to release me from this. I said, because, you know, I'm, I've spent all my life just wanting a mother's love. And I'm not going to get it from her. I'm not going to get it from her. And I said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life waiting on something that I'm not going to get. And I'm serious. I just had this conversation with God, and I said, so if I'm not going to ever get that from her, can you just release me from this? You know, because she would die. She she would be at the point of death, and just all of a sudden she would just bounce back sometimes, you know, just bounce back. And I said, you know, I said, this is this is a cycle. And and it was like she would, she would do something to bring herself to the point of death, and then um, when she would, you know, use that to get my attention or, you know, to try to hurt me. I mean, I, I promise you, to try to hurt me um, and just snap back. I mean, she just kept me on this roller coaster ride. And, and I just said, you know, Lord, uh, if she's ready to die, I'm ready to let her go. Because I didn't want to let go because I just kept holding out hope that one day, just one day, <laughs> She's going to say something to have made this all worth it. And that one day came, and the reality was that she wasn't going to do that for me. And I remember uh, calling the cemetery and the funeral home and talking to them, and they had known my story for years, you know, and they said, you know, you've really done all that you can do. It's time for you to let go of that, you know, because you can't keep holding on to that hope. And I said, but you don't understand. They said, no, we don't. But we do know that if you don't let go, it, it's going to kill you. And it was killing me. Waiting for my mother to love me was killing me. <laughs> I mean, it was taking a toll on me on every level. And I said, um, I just want to be free. I just, but I just want her to tell me that she loves me. I want her to hold me and mean it. 
And I just, you know, I just kept saying, you know, she's capable of this. I know she is because I see her giving it to my son, you know. And it was like, <laughs> you're not going to get that. You're just not going to get that because she, you know, she has disassociated herself from you, you know. And that's mm-hmm. the same thing that happened with your mom. You know, she disassociated herself mm-hmm. from you. But she could give it to somebody else because there was no, you know what I'm saying? It, it was just like there, there was no con, no blood connection there. So to disassociate from you and, and to, to to be detached from you and your brother was her way of coping. And just like, I, you know, we were talking uh, before about Oprah Winfrey's situation with her mother and with her siblings that she didn't know she had and Oprah taking her sibling. Uh, to go and meet her mom, and her mom not being able to give her what she came looking for, and and I I could see her pain, and I understood her pain. Is that you you know you came from somewhere, you know you came out of somebody, and you want to be able to identify that with that person, you know you want them to acknowledge you, to validate you, to value the fact that you're alive. And these people look at you like, you know, it's almost as if they're looking through you, not at you, but just looking through you. Mm. And, you know, I, I spent years with that, you know, and I just thought, you know, that's just not um, how I want to spend the rest of my life. So I went home and I prayed and I asked God, I said, you know, if if I'm not going to get this and, and it's in your will, you know, release me from this. You know, let me go by letting her go. And I was concerned about her salvation. And so every time that she would be in the hospital, I would have a minister to come and pray for her. You know, I I would pray for her, and I I would have anybody just come and pray for her, you know, pray for her, you know, lead her through the prayer of salvation. I didn't care how many times, just lead her through the prayer of salvation. Because the one thing I thought, you know, is that even though she had not done right by me, I still didn't want to have the thought that she could, you know, end up in hell, (laughs) you know. I still was concerned for her soul. I said, you know, I can't do anything for her body. I says, but her soul needs to be saved, you know. And and so, you know, I would lead her uh, through the sinner's prayer, but, I, you know, just to be sure, I would give somebody totally different to lead her through the sinner's prayer every single time she was in the hospital. And, and I, ha- I would have hospice reaching out to her and ministering to her and everything. I says, because I just don't want her to go to hell. But you would think that I, I wouldn't care. I mean, I had people tell me, why do you even care where she goes? Why do you care what happens to her? I just, I can't explain any other way. It's just like that's how I got here. She could have killed, you know, she could have took my life. She could have aborted me because they had abortions back then, right? Okay. Um, she could have succeeded at killing me on the attempts that she tried to kill me, you know, but she didn't. Um, and so the time that I had with her, even though it was it was painful, um, I could see what, you know, we had similarities. I could see uh, where we had similar features. And, and, you know, just, you know, looking for similarities, you know. And I remember when she was laying in the hospital uh, in her gown, uh, for the first time I just looked at her because they were changing her, and I just looked at her whole body, everything. You know, I mean, I looked her over inch by inch, and I said, oh, I've got that same mold. I'm serious. It was just like anything that I could find that would help me identify 
that this woman was indeed my mother, and I knew she was my mother, but it was just like I just needed something tangible, you know? And it was just it was just unreal. I mean, I was I was looking at her mouth, I was looking at her eyes, I was looking at her everything. You know, I was comparing every single thing. I, I put my hand up against her hand, I looked at her hand, I looked at my fingers, I looked at her skin, I looked at my skin, and I'm like, This is my mother. You know, this is the person who gave birth to me, but I can't get her love. I can't, you know, get that from her. And it's like, you know, she's going to take this to the grave. And and I felt like she was taking what belonged to me with her. You know what I'm saying? Like she was taking a part of me with her. And mm-hmm. I thought, if I don't let go before she dies, this is going to kill me. Because, you know, they, I, I'm telling you, I had been at the point of death. And I thought, you know, if I don't let this go, this is going to kill me. So I was at the um, the cemetery, at the funeral um, um, home, mm-hmm. and I was inconsolable making plans, you know, for her, her burial. I was inconsolable. And they came in there, you know, normally they let you cry. They told me, you need to stop crying. You need to stop crying. You need to let this go because you are making yourself sick. And I looked at them, and I had my phone with me, and I had, like, worship music on my phone. I All of a sudden, I, I couldn't hear what they were saying. I just saw their mouth moving, and I took my phone, and I plugged in my ear earpiece, and I just listened to worship music, and I laid my head down. On the on the desk at the funeral home, and I just laid there. I just laid there, and I just wept, and I just cried, and I said, "God, if you don't help me, I'm not going to make it through this." And I remember um, the funeral director coming by with a band on his arm, and it said, "God, it's big enough." And I looked up and I said, "I have to have that." And he says, "I will get you one. I promise I will have it for you, great size." And I says, "And I need another one to give to my child." And when I saw that, I think, you know, God is big enough to see me through this. God is big enough to get me through this. He has brought me this far. He will see me through this. Okay. So suck it up for now and get through this because you've got to make the funeral arrangements. You've got to make the plans and everything, you know. And I was here by myself. You know, I, I at that point, I felt so alone. I felt so alone, you know. And... um. I just thought, you know, I, I can't do this by myself. I'm like, God, you know, I, I need help. I, I mean, I was just so lost. I was just so lost, you know, for words, for feelings and everything. And I had just gone through so much. I had gone through so much. And I thought, you know, I deserve to have her love me. I deserve to have her tell me that she loved me. And I think every motherless child um, searches for that, you know. And when you don't get it, 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 you feel like you just can't. It just sucks the life out of you, and it, it leaves you um, having so many difficulties of your own trying to, to, to compensate and trying to make up for Because like you, I did the same thing. Everything that I thought I could possibly do to, to make my mother's life, you know, better, and, and I was limited in even that. But whatever I could do, I wanted to do. So, you know, I feel good about what I did because when people were encouraging me to, to do the opposite, to, you know, not care, you know, why don't you just donate her body to science, why do you even care, you know? 
I mm. did the right thing. And I feel at peace about that, and I know that you did the right thing. And so anybody who is listening to this broadcast, anybody now or later, if you if you don't know who your birth mother is now or you find out later, let the barometer for how you handle it be that you do what's right. You do what's right, okay? I'm not saying, you know, go into debt or anything like that or do anything extreme. But as long as you can answer yourself at the end of the day, did I do the right thing by my mother? Did I do the right thing by her? Even though she didn't love me, even though she wasn't there for me, did I do the right thing? Because at the end of the day, you will have to give an account for how you handle that. So it's like life is difficult and you have difficult things that happen in life. But how you respond to those difficulties makes all the difference in how you live. Because the worst torture or torment that you can ever have is to have somebody um, where you had the opportunity to make peace with that situation, with that individual before they die, and you don't make peace with them. And then it's almost as if they die with their hand outside of the grave holding on to your foot and holding you at the cemetery because that's, that is exactly what it feels like is that if you don't make peace with them, it's like they have one hand up out of the grave with it around your foot holding you down because you will forever say, you know, I, I regret that. I wish that I had done this. I wish I had done that. Forever regretting that. But, you know, I'm glad that you don't have any regrets. I'm glad that you were able to get through that. I'm glad that you were able to, um, you know, express yourself to your mom as best as you could. Um, I'm glad that um, even if she didn't reciprocate it or return it, that it's not going to be on you to have to give an account for that. When your turn comes to die, you know what I'm saying? Because right. so many people, you know, when they have regrets, they die some horrible, horrible, painful deaths. You know, just just screaming and hollering and bellowing and stuff because they have a guilty conscience. You know, but when you can lay down and know that when I die, you know, I'm at peace with myself. I'm at peace with God, and I'm at peace with the people that I was supposed to care for and nurture. That's important, you know, so how you live this life, you need to live this life well. Live live it the best that you possibly can. And um, I, I just truly believe that what you do to other people will come back to you and what you do for other people will come back to you, whether it's good or bad, it will come back to you. So be careful how you treat people. Be careful how you handle people. Be careful how um, you speak to people, you know. And in just because you don't really know what somebody's going through. I mean, just like you, could somebody easily identify that you didn't grow up without your mother? Ken? Yeah. I mean, did you did you walk around and, and people say, you know, that there goes somebody who didn't have his mother? No, no, no one say that. Not not my mother. 
but you know what I'm saying? So it's like when someone, when you're walking down the street, you don't know. You really don't right. know what that person next to you has gone through or is going through because right. sometimes it, it's not that evident. It's just not that right. evident. So, you know, how you treat somebody, you know, right. how, how you handle somebody. And especially um, I, I'm so grateful when you say how you treat your children. You know, you do right. for your children what was not done for you. Right. Even the difficult situations and the difficult relationships, you still do for your children better than what was done for you. There are some people who say, you know what, I didn't get it, so they're not going to get it. Right. You know, my mother didn't yeah. love me, so I don't have to love my children. And I'm not even talking about your brother. I just realized that, but I wasn't even talking about your brother. But there are people that I know of that have said to me, and, and, and I, I know, you know, one person in particular who had a child that they just could not love, and they had another child that they just adored. And the, and that child was in their 20s and came down with cancer. Mm-hmm. And that about child, the, the one that they loved came down with cancer? Yeah, the child in, her, in their 20s came down with cancer and died. Mm-hmm. You know, all they wanted was their mother's love. But they couldn't give them that love because it, that child reminded them of that man that rejected them. But the one who they loved, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's it's like just because somebody did not love you, care for you, nurture you, does not give you the right to bring children into this world and reciprocate the same thing. If you know that you don't have a maternal instinct in your bone, you aren't a caring, nurturing person, you don't have children. It's just that simple, you know? Don't have children. Why have children if you know you have no intent of loving that person or that you aren't capable of overlooking um who that person's father was in order to love that child. And if you bring them into this world, you know, put them in the care of a loving home. You know, mm-hmm. give, I, I would love to see, you know, a child be given up for adoption. Right, right. Somebody who is going to love and, and care for them and nurture them. I mean, but really do the investigation and make sure that these people are legitimate because, you know, I was put in an environment like that and it was hell on earth for me. Those people should have never been allowed to have me. So, um, you know, I mean, if if you're pregnant and you don't want that child and you can't get over some kind of issue that you have with that child's father, find a, a legitimate adoption agency that will do the background work to check these people out and make sure that that child gets placed in a loving home a loving and a nurturing home, people who genuinely want to have another child that's not their own and treat that child as if it is their own. doesn't matter whether that family's black or white. If they're able and capable of loving that child, give that child a chance. You know, I mean... So it's um it's it's kind of it's kind of sad and um it's you know you, 
you would think that because it happens a lot in the black community that it's a huge epidemic, but it happens in every culture. It happens in every culture, but it just seems to be more prevalent and more obvious in our community because when um, it happens in other cultures, those children are blended in a whole lot better than they are in ours, you know? And I don't know why that is, but I think that maybe the other cultures have a better sense of family in some instances, you know, uh, because you, you'll take Hispanics. I mean, they come to the rescue of each other, you know. Um, and, and you just say yeah. any, any of the other, but the deficit that we have as, as, uh, as I guess, uh, post-slavery African-Americans is that mm-hmm. some of us don't have that connection. That's one thing I admire about the Hispanic population. They roll three, four generations deep. Exactly. You know, you see them out in public, you see grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, sister, brother, uncle. I mean, it's like it's the whole whole family. Yeah, me familia, you know, and that's that's how they are. You know, they, they will come to the rescue, but, you know, it's like that's because they... You know, we're never, ever enslaved, you know. Um, If you go to Africa and you see, you know, uh, in Africa, they roll like that. When you see us over here, when you see us over here, when you see us over here, we roll in solo. You sit up there at at the place eating by yourself. Yeah. And they got the whole, it's like. I don't mean to. I don't mean to. I hate to be. I hate when I get caught in line behind a family Hispanic because I'm gonna be waiting a while. <laughs> but you know, but you still have to look at that. Is that they come over here and they get homes faster than we do? Um, yeah. and they will pool their monies together, you know, and they will share with one another. Um, it's just, but it's every culture. Except you know ours, it's, it's more predominant in almost every culture except ours. Yeah, but we we making progress, folks. We making we some progress. We yeah, are. I uh, you know, I was touching on my grandmother a little bit. I mean, she just passed recently in 2010. Really? And uh, oh, I, I I was still taking my grandmother in a wheelchair because she was diabetic, but. I go get Grand and take her to the college there playing us in a heartbeat. <laughs> She'd be ready to go. Be ready to go. Mama, you, 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 you want to get out tonight? What's going on? Well, you know Tyler Perry's in town. You want to go? Yeah. And you know what? I I mean, just the look of admiration that I would get from, from, from people when I would be pushing my grandmother in a wheelchair. Through uh, through the uh, the area where you come in, you get seated, and it's just mm-hmm. it's just you know that that in itself was a whole whole different uh, thing to enjoy and experience too, you know, because I could have easily been on a date with somebody, and I was in a way I was with my grandma, but you know, I could have <laughs> easily called up somebody and say, hey, you want to go get down there? And he's like, oh yeah, and so I called my grandma up, hey baby. You want to go see John Perry? Mm-hmm. Because uh, she was she was that type of person. I mean, she was always yeah. outgoing and and uh, 
she had a lot of energy all the way up until, you know, she couldn't walk anymore. Uh, she was, you know, really, really active, which was really good because that's the way I am with my kids, you know. We we do stuff together, you know. So uh, that's one thing that I, I remember. And she really enjoyed, you know, I, I'd call her. You know, I'd get out, get her out of the house as much as possible because I knew she was the type of person that liked to go. Well, you know, Phil's day. It's like if there's anybody <sighs> in the listening audience who has been listening yeah. to us talk about our story, you know, to have this fireside chat, if you would, with with the audience, um, and you're considering suicide, if you're depressed. Um, you have any kind of thoughts of harming yourself or anybody else. If you are a veteran, please call the Veteran Suicide Hotline at 800-273-8255 or the National Suicide Hotline at 800-784-2433. And uh, we want to encourage you and bring hope, hope that we brought hope to you that as long as you're living above ground without a mother's love, life is possible. Um, we've both gone on to become great parents, and we want to encourage you that if you have children and you were not loved by your mother, please don't, please don't pass that generational curse on to them. Mm-hmm. So, um, please, you know, you can break the cycle. You can, you can be free of that. Okay, so uh, depression. Uh, chronic and acute illnesses and, and sadnesses that you may have with your mom being the shoot on stage. Um, we offer you our condolences and our sympathy. We promise you we have been touched by that and we understand. Okay? Um, so, so if your mother is alive and you don't have a relationship with her, we've gone through that and we've told you, you know, the best thing that you can do is always do what's right. Because ultimately, you have to live with that choice. Mm-hmm. So you're not alone. Um, we thank you that because we've both been motherless, that we love you sincerely. We love our audience, Ken, and just you know, share that with them is that somebody does love you. We love you mm-hmm. for the rest of life. And we want you to live and live well. So uh, my guests and I are both proof that you can endure tremendous pain and you can resolve to keep on living and you keep on building and keeping a heart of love, even if you don't receive your mother's love or validation from your mother, dead or alive. So to those mothers who have been responsible, I want to share this poem with you. Um, and it is an unknown author, and it's just called A Mother. When a child, when you're a child, she walks before you to set an example. When you're a teenager, she walks behind you to be there should you need her. When you're an adult, she walks beside you so that as two friends, you can enjoy life together. I hope for you that you have this kind of a mother's love. And if you did not receive this kind of a mother's love, I hope that you can be that kind of a mother to your children. I hope that um, you can be a good grandmother to your children because there are some um, grandmothers who don't love their grandchildren and don't love um, their their daughters and their sons. 
But we have an opportunity, you know, today's a new day. Every day that you get up, it's a new day. So um, don't let this man-made holiday. Mother's Day is a man-made holiday. If you do the history search on it, it's a man-made holiday. And it wasn't even about honoring mothers. It was about trying to get women to become active politically. If you do the research on Mother's Day, that is the intent that it was for. It was to get women, mothers, to become politically active, okay? So don't get all tripped up on these commercialized holidays, okay? Every day that you're alive, if you're a great mother, happy Mother's Day to you every day, okay? If you're a mother who's struggling, get get help. Go get counseling. Go to uh, your, your local um, church leaders. If you don't feel comfortable going to your local church leaders, reach out in the community. You know, there are plenty of advocacy centers. There are plenty of uh, family research uh, centers, uh, resource centers that are offering free parenting classes. You know, go and get some help. Go and get some help. Stop hurting your children. Stop hurting yourself. So on this man-made commercial holiday, don't let it trigger you to take your life or take somebody else's life or to do harm to your children because they remind you of somebody who didn't love you. I mean, there are people who have children who remind them of their mother. Did you know have you seen that? That you know, you act just like my mom. You know, you, you remind me of my mother. So they really will mistreat that child if they had a horrible experience with their mom. But my guest today, Ken Thomas and I are proof again just because you did not receive a mother's love, living or dead, you don't have to pass it on. He has gone on to become a loving father, and I have gone on to become a loving mother. Okay? And um, I would dare not give to a child of mine or a child of anybody the mistreatment that was done to me. And I don't believe Ken would do that either because I've heard him talk about how, you know, he's, Nurturing in his family, not just to his children, but to his nieces and nephews, uh, to you know, other people in his family that he's there for them. So um, love somebody um, that you know is not getting that mother's love. Love, love them. You know, love them. Give them a hug. Uh, tell them that you're glad that they they were born. And to anybody who's been on my show that I've interviewed. Um, on uh, today, this is Mother's Day, and if you don't have your mother's love, again, I'm saying to you, you are loved, so glad that you are alive, so glad that you were not aborted, so glad that you haven't died, so glad that you haven't taken the easy way out, and uh, that you're still living and building a life for yourself. Keep doing that. Keep doing that, because you owe it to yourself to live and live well. So, again, Ken, you have yes. final comments that you want to share with the audience. Thank you again for being on the show. Hey, you say any what I, that I want to share? I didn't hear you. Yes, do you have any final comments that you want to share? We've got eight minutes. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I basically, uh, you know, like, you know, doing the get-to-know session between you and I, um, 
you know, I mentioned that my father has, you know, several several children by, you know, uh, different uh, different women. Well, we but this, we're going to bring you this, back for the fatherless show, okay? <laughs> well, I was just saying. I just wanted to say that my brother, my one of my brother's mother, uh, you know, uh, I've uh, gravitated toward her, and she's, you know, accepted me as her son and. Uh, you know, we're close and everything. So I'm, I just want to suggest that, you know, there's always somebody out there that will will pick up the slack and, and, and love you as one of their own. You just got to find them. Yes, I agree. Because along the way in my life, I've had eight different people um, that at different milestones in my life that have come alongside of me. And I did whatever they could do to show me a mother's affection, um, to show me a mother's um, guidance. And um, so I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm very right. grateful for that because it did help me. It did help me. But you have to be open to receive it because there are people out there willing to give you that, but you have to be open to receive it because it will not happen if you don't receive it, okay? So... Um, I want to share um, a song. Do you mind, uh, Ken, uh, with no. the audience? Um, so um, let me see. I remember playing this this uh, jazz piece, and I know that that sounds really crazy, but um, it's just a nine-second piece, okay? I'm going to share this one first, and it's by my former guest, Patricia Adams, the jazz singer. Heart. It's not my watch you're holding, it's my heart. She says, it's not my watch you're holding, it's my heart. So remember that you're holding somebody's heart. You're not holding their watch. And um, it can still be broken. It still can be wounded and it still can be hurt. But now, in closing, I just... I just really want to send out a big hug um, to the audience and say, you know, we love you here at Patricia Adams Live, okay? We love you here, and we want you to continue on. And remember, you're holding somebody's heart. You're not holding their watch, okay? Thank you again, Ken, for being on Patricia Adams Live. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yes, and we hope that you will come back um, and uh, help um, talk about the fatherless um, side of things, okay? Sure, anytime. All right, appreciate it. Hold, hold the line. My book, A Child's Rights Violated, Her Terrors and Traumas, shares my voice to my childhood difficulties, and my other books share my voice of response to my childhood difficulties. Find links in the show notes or go to PatriciaAdamsLive.com to be taken to online retailers. If you are in distress currently and need immediate help, call 911. And you can also reach out to the National Hotline for Child Abuse at 1-800-4-CHILD. 24-7 crisis counselors are available. As we close the show, remember... Temporary difficulties end and your response to them 
determine how you live life after your difficulties. So respond well and live. Tweet about the show on Twitter at Pat Adams Live and comment to our Facebook page at the bottom of the show page. Follow us on the show page to receive notices of the next airing. If you have questions, comments, want to be a guest, topic requests, let me know. Fill out the contact form on PatriciaAdamsLive.com. Thanks for listening. That's the show. Until next time, take care and watch for more from the Patricia Adams Live show. I want to play um, a little bit of this song. Um, Jonathan um, and uh, Kurt Whalen on here, and it's Falling in Love with You because that was the turning point in my life.